working our way through the Lord's Prayer. And last week we came to that little phrase, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we spent a lot of time last week looking at what forgiveness looks like, why we forgive, how we forgive. And today is a follow-up on that sermon. So if you didn't, haven't listened to last week's sermon or you weren't there, you really do need to listen to that sermon because the two go t- together. Uh, this morning is not so much a sermon uh, preaching God's word as it is a talk on, on this huge uh, subject. I think that it's often easy to talk about forgiveness in the abstract, just to let it be an intellectual exercise. And so as we begin today, I want us to have a look at a real-life example of forgiveness from a lady called Debbie Morris. This is from an interview between Debbie Morris and Philip Yancey, just to put the topic of forgiveness in context and to look at how one person forgave the unforgivable. The unforgiveness that I was holding on to, the hate, the anger, was destroying my life. I was continuing to let these men uh, have, have control over me. I was continuing to let myself be victimized over and over and over again because I was hanging on to the hate and I was unwilling to forgive. The next story involves an even more daunting act of forgiveness. You probably remember the movie Dead Man Walking. Starring Sean Penn, it told the story of a brutal crime and the execution of the man who did it. Well, the press and the film gave a lot of attention to Sister Helen Prejean, a compassionate nun who visited the murderer on death row. But behind the scenes, away from the spotlight, a quiet drama of forgiveness was being acted out. You know, I know now that there's no such thing as unforgivable. And, and I've learned that mostly um, by taking little steps at a time and feeling the benefit in my life. You know, w- when I started out, you know... Debbie Morris is the author of The Counterpart to Dead Man Walking, a powerful story of forgiving the unforgivable. When I was 16 years old, I was kidnapped by two men. And my boyfriend and I were kidnapped by these two men. And during the course of 36 hours, these two men shot my boyfriend, tortured him and shot him and left him for dead. And then they raped me repeatedly before they finally let me go. And I guess, you know, so many people would consider that alone unforgivable. And then, uh, you know, after I was released, I found out that they had also kidnapped another girl three days earlier, and they murdered her. And so when you look at some of the things that these two men did, most people would put them in the category of unforgivable. And that's how they were categorized in my life for years as unforgivable. Debbie wrote her story down to help her healing process, but also to help others see that there are healing steps beyond mere justice and retribution. I think that that many times people in my situation think that justice 
is what is going to heal them. And I thought that. In fact, I kept, I kept looking towards certain milestones, you know, that were going to heal me. Um, when these two men were captured, everything would be all right. Uh, when the trials were over, you know, when their sentence was handed down and justice was served, that everything would be all right. I would feel healed. And I was disappointed time after time because justice was not fulfilling it and I don't mean to say that there's no place for justice you know as far as our legal system is concerned um, you know there needs to be a way to be able to punish offenders violent offenders especially however what we get confused about is the healing effect of justice justice is not what heals us and it certainly didn't heal me I don't think that was was ever uh, any more clear to me than the morning after Robert Lee Willie, one of the men who kidnapped and raped me, was executed. I thought surely this would be the end and I would feel completely satisfied and completely healed. But what happened was in the weeks before his execution, I was feeling very anxious about it and uncertain. And I, I would reflect constantly on my role in his execution, you know, my testifying against him, all in the name of justice. And I realized then that there's no such thing as justice here on earth for what that man did. He could have died in the electric chair five times, and it wasn't going to be justice for the parents who lost their 18-year-old daughter. It wouldn't be justice for what I lost as a 16-year-old girl, uh, experiencing that kind of terror and sexual assault, and you know, my life was changed forever. There is no justice here on earth for things like that. The only justice is, is going to be when God gives his final judgment. There are lots of people out there who like one true crime story after another. And some people can't get enough of that kind of stuff. But I feel like the power in my story is in being able to show other people how God's grace changed my life. And, um, and that's the story that I was willing to tell. Before I got to that point, I wasn't even willing to share with people I knew what had happened to me. There was still so much shame involved in it. And you know, when, when I was able to forgive, not only did the hate and the anger and the pain go away, but the shame did too. Debbie's story and her book are eloquent testimony to the power of forgiveness, even forgiving the unforgivable. When I chose to forgive, there was a prisoner that was set free, and I realized that that prisoner was myself. It's a really powerful story. Uh, I think her book's available in the library, or I've got a copy that you could borrow too. So as we come to the topic of forgiveness today, I want to begin by looking at some nice, soppy things that forgiveness is not. And I think that that's important because watering down forgiveness into sentimentality has two tragic effects. Firstly, it doesn't do anyone any good, neither myself nor the offender. 
And secondly, it destroys the beauty and the grace of the real thing. We, we need the genuine article. So just a couple of things. Number one, forgiving is not the same as forgetting. If you could forget about it, you wouldn't need to forgive it. Now, it is possible and even desirable to forget uh, some of the, the little things that have happened to us. It would be awful if I could vividly remember every instance when someone cut me off in traffic or every time someone stood in front of me with a trolley in the 10 items or less queue. But sometimes there are big things like rape and abuse that can't be forgotten. And in that case, forgiving isn't simply forgetting. I read an interview with Debbie Morris once in which she said, there's just not a day that goes by that in some way I don't think about what happened. But then she went on to say, but it doesn't cause me pain anymore. And I think there's a key. Some people think I still remember. Does that mean that I haven't forgiven? Not always. The question to ask is, is the pain still there? If the pain is lessening, it's a good sign that forgiveness has taken place. And sometimes, by God's grace, sometimes some of the memory goes away too. Number two, forgiving is not the same as excusing. So sometimes we can excuse someone for something they did. They made a mistake, they didn't have the right information, they were having a bad day, and we simply say to them, you didn't mean it, it couldn't be helped, just forget it. You excuse someone when you decide you can't blame them. You forgive someone when you do blame them. You hold them responsible. One writer says, before we forgive, we stiffen our spine and we hold a person accountable. And only then, in tough-minded judgment, can we do the outrageously impossible thing. We can forgive. Number three, forgiving is not the same as smoothing things over. And sometimes parents do this with their children, don't they? They're there, don't be upset, he didn't mean it, it's not a big thing, it's not important, it was just an accident. What we're really saying is, don't make a fuss, I can't stand the noise. Sometimes churches are good at smoothing over conflict. We don't think that conflict is nice or Christian, and so we just try to smooth things over, which in fact can be very damaging. Nobody learns anything, nobody grows Relationships aren't deepened, and the problem grows, grows worse, or it pops up somewhere else. Just smoothing things over is not the same as the fine art of forgiveness. And number four, forgiving is not the same as tolerating. So I, I remember hearing the story of, of a mother whose little girl was knocked over by a drunk driver. And she said that for two years after that, the hate for this drunk driver just consumed her. She constantly thought about him. She constantly thought about ways in which she might be able to get revenge. She prayed that he would have the most miserable of lives. And eventually, she couldn't stand it any longer. And she went along to her priest and said to him, I need to do something. This man hasn't just taken the life of my daughter. He's taken my life as well. I'm allowing him to make my life a misery. What can I do? And her priest said to her, well, you're going to need to forgive him, but before we do that, you're going to need to do something else. We need to start a Mothers Against Drunk Drivers group here in the city. You need to forgive, but you also need to make sure that drunk driving isn't tolerated. 
Forgiveness isn't the same as tolerance, and we often make that mistake, particularly in abusive or uh, destructive relationships. Uh, A husband hits his wife and says, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again, but it does. And many wives think that the Christian thing to do is to forgive their husbands and go on. But that's not fair to anyone, to yourself or to your husband. Some, in some cases, the best thing you can do for your husband is to call the police and have him arrested, to bring him to his senses and get him to seek help. I don't have to uh, put up with my brother coming around to my house drunk every Saturday. Each of us in relationship has to decide our boundaries, what we will tolerate and what we will not. Forgiving someone doesn't mean tolerance. Interestingly as well, forgiving someone doesn't mean that they, have, they, they don't have to deal with the consequences of their actions. And we heard that in the interview earlier. Debbie said that there does need to be a legal system that punishes offenders. It was interesting, though, that she said that justice isn't the same as healing. I think that was an important point from what, from what she had to say. So four things that forgiveness is not. It's not forgetting or excusing or smoothing over or tolerating. What then is forgiveness and how do we forgive? We looked at some of this last week, but a few more steps in the direction of forgiveness. So firstly, forgiveness involves recalling the hurt. Um, either for myself or with the other person. We sit down and we talk about exactly what happened. We need to agree that a hurt actually occurred. I I need to acknowledge uh, what happened, to look it square in the eye and say, this event happened and this is how I feel about it. Now, you and the other person might not remember every single detail precisely the same way, but at least some agreement that some wrong has taken place. Secondly, forgiveness involves revising my picture of the other person. In other words, I give my enemy's humanity back to him or her. You see, when we've been wronged, we often define the person who wronged us in terms of what they did to us. So John, yes, he's the blankety-blank who lied about me. Or Mary, yes, she's the one who stole from me. We define the person in terms of what they've done to us. And throughout history, people have been able to encourage war on other people and all sorts of awful things on others through this technique of defining people in only one way. So during World War II, the Americans said, the Japanese are nothing but monkeys. The Japanese said, the Americans are nothing but savages. Nothing but. We reduce that person to that nothing but, and so we justify our hatred of them. That's why we get angry in the traffic, and why incidents of road rage take place, because I'm seeing a BMW or a taxi, and not a mother with children or a teenager with a new license. So when we forgive, we begin to see the person who hurt us as more than just the wrong that they did to us. We try to see them as God sees them, as a fallible, failed, struggling human being, not all that much different from me. In an interview with Christianity Today, Debbie Morris said that that was one of the steps in her journey of forgiveness, understanding that Robert Willey was a person. She said that when her first child was born, she remembered that Robert Willey was a baby once too. 
She also began to see him as a sinner needing salvation. She said, if I, if I say I forgive Robert Willie but don't want to see him in heaven, that's contradictory. If I forgive him the way God expects me to forgive him, I want God to win his soul over. I couldn't have said that when I was 18 or 22. I just wasn't ready. I had to be able to stop looking at it, looking at it as a victory for Robert Willie and start looking at it as a victory for God. I needed to accept a difficult truth. God loved Robert Willie as much as he loves me. It's hard to understand God's grace. Even though the Bible says it has nothing to do with what we deserve, we still tend to think that way. Jesus' parable about the vineyard workers in Matthew 20 finally put this in perspective for me. That's the one where those who work for only one hour in the vineyard at the very end of the day receive the same amount of pay as those who labored all day. I'd heard the parable many times before, but a few years ago I applied it to Robert Willie and realized it didn't matter how late in the game he came to Jesus as long as he came. And if he did, God wanted him every bit as much as he wants me because he loved him every bit as much. Thirdly, uh, forgiveness involves offering an altruistic, or that is, a selfless gift. Uh, Forgiveness is a a gift. Uh, uh, The gift is is probably an an act of the will first. Um, It's a decision. We we might not feel like forgiving, but, but feelings come later. I make a decision. I am going to forgive this person. And in fact, it's a a gift that I give myself. I just love the end of that interview where Debbie Morris says with that radiant smile, when I forgave, I released a prisoner and I discovered the prisoner was myself. Fourthly, forgiveness involves a process. And I think that's important to see. It might be something that we need to do again and again. Um, In in that video, Debbie spoke about the healing that took place through little steps, by taking little steps at a time. In one of her interviews, uh, she says this, The night of his execution, as I lay in bed in the dark, I told God I forgave Robert Willie. It was a selfish, practical, desperate, I need to get through this sort of thing. After that prayer... I immediately felt a burden lift. But I didn't realize I still needed to forgive for other reasons and at a deeper level. Forgiveness was an event, I thought, not an ongoing process. But over time, I've learned that it is an ongoing process. And chances are that we too are going to need to forgive over and over again in different ways and at different levels. And fifthly, forgiveness may include a public commitment. That would mean sharing with someone else, or maybe with a small group, our decision to forgive another person. That can also help us. So why should I forgive someone else? Why should I do something that is so unnatural, sometimes even painful? We looked at this last time, but just to recap and expand. So firstly, forgiveness breaks that cycle of unforgiveness and retribution. There's only one way to get out of the tit-for-tat cycle that our world so often finds itself in, 
and that is forgiveness. The Israelis and the Palestinians will never stop killing each other until someone somewhere says, stop, this is enough. The same in many other parts of our world too. It was Mahatma Gandhi who once said that an eye for an eye just makes the whole world blind. Another writer points out that revenge is like aiming a gun at yourself and firing, hoping that your enemy will be hurt by the gun's recoil. As we said last week, revenge damages us. And so secondly, forgiveness frees us. If we don't forgive, we we live out our lives in the past and we get hit again and again by that old hurt. Each time we think about it, we experience that old pain over and over again. As Debbie said, the unforgiveness that I was holding on to, the hate, the anger, was destroying my life. And when I chose to forgive, there was a prisoner that was set free. And I realized that the prisoner was myself. Thirdly, as we saw last week, we we forgive others because there are times when we need forgiveness from others. Those who cannot forgive others break the bridge over which they themselves must pass. All of us at some time in our lives are going to need to be forgiven. But finally, and most importantly, we forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven us. And so far, the reasons that I've given for forgiving other people have been things that benefit us. And in fact, many people put the main emphasis there. One writer said, make a commitment to yourself to do what you have to do to feel better. Forgiveness is for you and not for anyone else. And to a certain extent, there's truth in that. But we can't stop there. As believers and followers of the Lord Jesus, that's not our motivation. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We read from Ephesians chapter 4 last week where Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And we also forgive others as an act of discipleship, as an act of following Jesus. In the book of 2 Peter, we read these words, that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Discipleship, following Jesus, is extremely hard work. We follow the crucified Jesus. Jesus calls us to all sorts of things that don't come naturally to us, things like sexual purity, sharing my faith, acceptance, reconciliation, and now this task, this hard task of forgiveness. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells of how he was sat in a Bible study group and they were having a discussion about forgiveness and they got onto the topic of divorce. Let me read to you what happened. Rebecca is a quiet woman and in weeks of meeting together, she'd really opened her mouth. At the mention of divorce, though, she proceeded to tell her own story. She'd married a pastor who had some renown as a retreat leader 
It became apparent, however, after a few years of marriage that her husband had a dark side. He dabbled in pornography, and on his trips to other cities, he solicited prostitutes. Sometimes he asked Rebecca for forgiveness, sometimes he did not. In time, he left her for another woman, Julianne. Rebecca told us how painful it was for her, a pastor's wife, to suffer this humiliation. Some church members who'd respected her husband treated her as if his sexual straying had been her fault. Devastated, she found herself pulling away from human contact, unable to trust another person. She could never put her husband out of mind because they had children, and she had to make regular contact with him in order to arrange his visitation privileges. Rebecca had the increasing sense that unless she forgave her former husband, a hard lump of revenge would be passed on to their children. For months she prayed. At first her prayers seemed as vengeful as some of the Psalms. She asked God to give her ex-husband what he deserved. Finally she came to the place of letting God, not herself, determine what he deserved. One night Rebecca called her ex-husband and said in a shaky, strained voice, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you've done to me. And I forgive Julianne too. He laughed off her apology, unwilling to admit he'd done anything wrong. Despite this rebuff, that conversation helped Rebecca get past her bitter feelings. A few years later, Rebecca got a hysterical phone call from Julianne, the woman who'd stolen her husband. She'd been attending a ministerial conference with him in Minneapolis, and he'd left the hotel room to go for a walk. A few hours passed, then Julianne heard from the police her husband had been picked up for soliciting a prostitute. On the phone with Rebecca, Julianne was sobbing. I never believed you, she said. I kept telling myself that even if what you said was true, he'd changed, and now this. I feel so ashamed and hurt and guilty. I have no one on earth who can understand. Then I remembered the night when you said you forgave us. I thought maybe you could understand what I'm going through. It's a terrible thing to ask, I know, but could I come and talk with you? Somehow Rebecca found the courage to invite Julianne over that same evening. They sat in her living room, cried together, shared stories of betrayal, and in the end prayed together. Julianne now points to that night as the time when she became a Christian. Our group was hushed as Rebecca told her story. She was describing forgiveness, not in the abstract, but in a nearly incomprehensible scene of human linkage, husband stealer and abandoned wife kneeling side by side on a living room floor praying. For a long time, I'd felt foolish about forgiving my husband, Rebecca told us. But that night, I realized the fruit of forgiveness. Julianne was right. I could understand what she was going through. And because I'd been there too, I could be on her side instead of her enemy. We both had been betrayed by the same man. Now it was up to me to teach her how to overcome the hatred and revenge and the guilt that she was feeling. Again, I realized this morning that for many, this isn't simply an interesting topic to think about. This is something that affects you personally. Maybe Debbie's story is your story. Rebecca's story is your story. And as we've been looking at stories of forgiveness over the last two weeks, there have been some people here who've been reliving these very things, abuse, rape, brutality. I do believe, though, that God wants us to forgive for our sake, 
and for his sake. And he never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. But if you're in that position, just a couple of things in closing. Firstly, it will take time. You're not going to go away from here today and immediately forgive. It'll take time, and it'll be a long journey. One writer says, forgiveness is not an immediate solution, an instant release, a quick fix. Instead, it's a painful journey, which has its own stations, like the stations of the cross, of Gethsemane, trial, suffering, and sometimes a bit of the cross itself. And secondly, you may need the help and support of the community, of this community, People who can walk with you and pray with you and pray for you and encourage you and support you. You may need the help of a trained professional. Don't think, though, that you need to walk this journey alone. That's what this community is here for. And then for all of us, it's important to remember that we follow a crucified Christ, that God knows something of the pain of forgiveness. We often protest, it's so hard to forgive. And God knows that. It costs God in blood and death to save us from our sins and to reconcile us to himself. Let's pray together. Hard it is, very hard, to travel up the slow and stony road to Calvary to redeem mankind. Far better to make but one resplendent miracle, lean through the cloud, lift the right hand of power, and with a sudden lightning smite the world perfect. Yet this was not God's way, who had the power, but set it by, choosing the cross, the thorn, the sorrowful wounds. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. Amen.